Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we've been traveling through 1 Timothy, and uh, just as by way of reminder, just to kind of refresh our memory, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy, and he's writing it to, to Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a, a young protege of the Apostle Paul, and Timothy has been left behind in Ephesus, and he's overseeing uh, several churches there in Ephesus. And uh, by, by way of this writing, the Apostle Paul, he's instructing Timothy on how the church should run and how the church should operate. And I think this is a good reminder for us because the Apostle Paul thought it was important to tell Timothy what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. These are the, this is the way that I want the church to run, he would say. These are, the way, this, these are the qualifications for leaders in the church. These are the qualifications for the bishop in the church. And uh, sometimes we have a tendency to forget that. And I think as a Christian, it's our obligation to know what are the requirements to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be a deacon. We're going to look at the, de- the requirements of being a deacon this morning. What do these offices mean? What are the, what are the, you say, well, Rob, I, might, I don't ever want to be a pastor. I don't ever want to be an elder. But you still need to know what the requirements are. Because what if there's an elder in a church that you happen to be attending or a pastor in a church that's not fulfilling those requirements? That would be a problem and it should be addressed. So as we travel through 1 Timothy, the first couple of chapters, Paul is making it very, very clear, hey, this is what's required. Last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter three in the first seven verses, the qualifications for an overseer. The qualifications in the word there is bishop. And we talked about how the Bible uses the word bishop, uh, uses the word elder, uses the word pastor, all kind of interchangeably. And there was a whole list of qualifications. They had to be blameless. Uh, They had to be the husband of one wife. They had to be temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. They had to not be given to wine. They had to not be violent, not greedy for money. They had to be gentle, quarrelsome, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well. Remember, we talked about if you can't rule your own house well, if you can't run your family, then how in the world do you think it's appropriate that you should be running God's family or God's people or the church and how it's a good indication of, of what's taking place. We talked about how having his children in submission and, and uh, with reverence, and, and we talked about how not being a novice, that the, you know, the leader of a church, it shouldn't be, you know, you don't get saved one week and decide to start a church or run a church the next week. It, it should, there's, there's time, there's a season that you have to go through. You have to prove, the, prove that your faith will stand up in difficult seasons. And then uh, this morning, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13, and we're going to be taking a look at these qualifications uh, that the apostle lays out there for deacons. So if you would, I'm just going to read all these verses, and then we're going to kind of go back and look at them one by one. So if you would, follow along with me in verse 8. Paul says, likewise, deacons, they must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He makes it very clear who he's addressing here. He says deacons. And that word is a Greek word. It it means one who executes the commands of another. Think of it this way. 
A deacon is a servant. A deacon is one person in the church who executes the commands or does what they're told, serves the body of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about the history of it just briefly because I don't want to completely bore you with the history, but I want to give you a little bit of background on it. But I want to share the first place that we see this happening in Scripture. And I want to share, and we're going, we're going to, you're going to see as, as we get into what we believe a deacon is, we're going to model that around what the Bible says. And the first place that we see a deacon in Scripture is Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And it says this. It says, in those days... The number of disciples was multiplying, and there arose a dispute between the Hebrews and the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So in Acts chapter 6, the church is growing fervently. It's, 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 it's multiplying. A large number of people are coming into the church, and they would give out daily distributions or daily food to the widows, and uh, we see that there's a problem there. We read that we can read there there's a dispute between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. They, somebody thought they weren't being treated fairly. The Hellenists thought, well, we're not, we're not getting our portion. There's, some, there's being some favoritism that's shown. We're, we're, we're being ripped off here. We're not getting as much as everybody else. So we, we're going to raise this dispute about it. So the 12 disciples, they get together. They summon everybody together. And here's what they say. They say, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now what they're saying is, listen, our job is the leaders of the church. We can't do everything. It's not our, our desire, our heart, our focus in what we're called to do is share the word of God. We can't be, it's not that we can't be bothered with that. We, we, there's, there's only 12 of us. We, we have to, we're gonna be run too thin if we're involved in everything. So here's what he says. They, here's what they say. Therefore, brothers, here's what I want you guys to do. He says, seek out from among you seven men. Go find seven men among you, and we're going to promote them. We're going to make them deacons. We're going to let them serve. We're going to let them handle these things within the church. And he, he, what they do is they end up promoting seven, uh, seven people. But there's three qualifications he gives for them. Because I want you to know something. When you decide that you want to serve in church, I want you to understand not only do you have to make that choice, but there's qualifications, there's requirements that's laid out before you. You can't just decide, well, I want to start serving in church next week. No, no, it doesn't work that way. There's certain qualifications that have to be met within your life. And the first three that we see here is these brothers seek from among yourselves seven men who are, number one, of a good reputation. Of a good reputation. You can understand why the people serving the church should be of a good reputation, right? You don't want the people that are, that are stealing handling the things of the church, do you? You don't want the people who aren't trustworthy distributing the bread and showing favoritism or, or distributing the meals to the widows. There has to be a good reputation. And the next qualification says full of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter six. I want you full of the Holy Spirit. And finally, full of wisdom, full of wisdom. And the apostles say this, they say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles say, listen, it's our job. We need to be focused on praying. We need to be focused on the word of God. That's, that's where our focus needs to be. Do you know that that hasn't changed for pastors today? The focus of a pastor needs to be in prayer and the word of God. Sometimes pastors can get pulled all different directions doing all different things, especially when churches are small. But what the pastor needs is people to come alongside of him to serve and fulfill other roles sir, so that he can be focused on the word of God and on prayer. If I didn't have time or I didn't take time to pray, I didn't take time to study, that's what you guys gather here for on Sunday morning. You come here to hear the word of God and that needs to be the focus. 
I need to take that time. I can't possibly do everything. In our church, we have this happening, I believe, the way that it should happen. There's lots of people that come alongside of me to do lots of things, to be able to just have church the way that we have it. The bigger the church, the more people that you need to come alongside. But when I say the word deacon, when we say the word deacon, here's what I know. Your mind goes in a couple different places depending on your religious background depending on what, what happened. In the early church, there was a dispute about what or who or what office a deacon should hold. Some people thought the deacon had no spiritual function whatsoever. Their job was just to do things for the, just do, do things for the body of Christ, help the clergy, uh, just, just be, be facilitators. Other people, uh, they thought that the deacon was an office that it was an office to be ascribed to, it was something that you had to be ordained to, it was something that was held in, in high regard. And today we see the exact same thing. It hasn't changed much. In some denominations today, deacons are found as part of a distinct order of the clergy. Sometimes maybe if you come out of a Catholic background, you think a deacon, you think somebody right underneath of a priest. If you come out of a different you know, background, you might think of something, that they're held in high regard. And other, other denominations, such as the Presbyterians, well, deacons are just laymen. They're just there to, they're just there to serve and to do, do the things that God calls and needs to get done around the church. There's, there's, no, there's no actual office that's ascribed to them. And I want you to know there's, there's neither one is right or wrong. It doesn't, it's not like one, one group has it right and one group has it wrong. One group's biblical, one group's unbiblical. It just kind of depends on how you see it, how you see it. So the question, the question that we have to look at is, well, how do we see it? How does Calvary Chapel Cumberland see it? How, how do we do, how do we, you know, do, do we have deacons? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the fact that we have lots of people within our body that do a lot of things that serve the body that would certainly meet the classification of a deacon. But we have never decided, and I don't know that we ever will, we may someday, give, give out titles that say deacon, deacon, you know, or elder, or the, no, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and as the church grows, that might become necessary as far as keeping things in order. But here's, here's the way that I see it. The word deacon is translated three ways in the New Testament. It's translated deacon, servant, and minister. I think that sometimes when you give people titles, it goes to their head. You ever seen that happen in somebody's life? They get a title, they start to think, well, now I'm somebody, now I'm special. But if I was to give somebody the title of a deacon, I wouldn't ever want them to learn, or I wouldn't ever want them to forget, rather, what it means to be a deacon. When you think of deacon, think servant. When Jesus said he came to serve, that's the same word there, deacon. He came to serve the people. So a deacon should be a person who's supposed to, who has a heart to serve other people. Now, I'm not real big on titles. I don't walk around and introduce myself as pastor. Usually I'm Rob. You can call me Rob. It's okay. Some people want to call me pastor. That's okay too. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not that, everybody knows that I'm the pastor of the church. I don't need to stand on that. Now, I also want to say that it's my job in our fellowship to be given to prayer and to the word of God, which I do and I'm able to do because the deacons or the people that serve in the ministry come alongside of me. Now, you will become a deacon or a servant because of what you do, not because of a title given to you. Let me say it to you that way. A deacon or a servant is noticed because what they're doing, they don't become that because, they, because somebody's ordained them or, or given them a title in something. 
You say, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to be more involved in the church. I'd like to serve more in the church. Well, good. We're going to talk about those requirements. Let's look at the qualifications for those people who say, I want to serve in the church. And, and what capacity is this, by the way? This is people who teach Sunday school. This is people who oversee ministries. This is, this is people who want to serve in a general sense in the church. And I find it interesting. The apostle Paul says, not anybody can do it. Not anybody can do it. Paul's telling Timothy, listen, you be careful who you appoint as leaders in the church, as people that are serving in the church. You be careful. Make sure there's certain things about them. And the first thing he says in verse, uh, verse 8 there, likewise, deacons, servants, must be, must be what? Must be reverent. That means showing the proper respect towards both God and man. They must be reverent people. It means this. It means they must be worthy of respect. They must be people who have a Christian character that's worth imitating. Does it say they have to be perfect? No, if they did, we'd all be disqualified, wouldn't we? It doesn't say perfect. It says they have to be reverent. Someone who takes their responsibility of serving in the church seriously. It's important that if you decide to serve and you decide to step up into a ministry and get involved in something or even start something someday, that you take it seriously. It's not just that, you know, well, no one's coming, so I'm not going to go either. No, if you, if you decide that you're going to do something, take it seriously. Finish what you said you would do. They must be reverent. Look at the next one. Not double-tongued. You guys know what that means? What's that mean? Two-faced, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You tell this person that one. You tell this person something else. You tell people what they want to hear. Why is the Apostle Paul laying these requirements out? So that Timothy doesn't select the wrong people because he knows the implication it's going to have. When we get to chapter four, Paul's going to lay down some pretty hefty warnings to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, if you want the church to succeed, you have to have certain kinds of people in place. Well, Rob, what if I am serving in the church and what if I am overseeing a ministry and all of a sudden I find out I don't meet one of these things? What do I do? Change. Align with it. Well, what if I can't align with it? Then it's time to step down. It's, there, there's always grace. There's always the ability to change. He says, I don't want you to be double-tongued. That's somebody, you don't tell tales from house to house. You're not a gossip. Someone who takes, uh, you don't take one thing from one person and take it to another. It's somebody you can depend on what they say. I'll be there on time. I'll be here at this time. They're there. You know, it's somebody who's trustworthy. It's dependability. And notice what it says next. It says, not given to much wine. Those of you that were here last week, it said not given to wine. You go, well, that fits me better. I like that category better. I can do, I just won't drink much wine, but I got to have a little bit of wine. Not drinking, not drinking much alcohol. We talked about this at great length last week. There's nothing in the Bible that prohibits somebody from having a drink of alcohol. There certainly prohibits drunkenness. I shared my opinions that I don't believe that leaders in the church should be drinking alcohol whatsoever. But here, the, the, the standard seems to be somewhat relaxed slightly, not given to much wine. We covered this when we covered 1 Timothy 3.3. I can refer you back to the recording. We covered it in depth last week. Also, it says, what else? Not greedy for money. Not greedy for money. Anybody who's greedy for money will always be looking for a way to gain more, won't they? They're always going to be looking for a way to gain more money. Have you ever seen anybody in the church that's greedy for money? You ever been to a church where there's a businessman and all he wants to do is use the church and the, it, it becomes his connection, his, his network for business? That's not what the church is for. There's nothing wrong with helping people in the church with your business, but, the church, but, but, but being a, you know, a salesman in the church is, is not the place for it to be. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, and I'm not saying anybody's doing this, but if somebody has an insurance business, they decide they're going to come to church and sell insurance, 
I have a problem if you're handing out business cards and promoting your business in the church and using it for that means. Not if, you have a, not if somebody comes to you and says, hey, can you help me with my insurance? Absolutely, we should help one another. But we have to be very, very careful that, we don't, that, that, that the church can't become a place of business. Isn't that why Jesus overturned the tables? Because it became a place of business. It became about money. It became, that's what it became about profits and gains. There are people who go to certain churches for certain reasons because it's good for their business. I will tell you that's dead wrong. Especially if it's a leader in the church that's doing it. People have said, hey, can I bring, my, can I bring this in and sell it? Can I bring, no, you can't. The church is not a place to sell anything. The books that we sell, we sell them at cost and they're resources for you guys to use. The things that we offer here, we don't try to make any money off of anything that we're doing. We try to recoup, recoup some of our costs. But the church shouldn't be this place of business where, where somebody's coming in to make a profit. Well, I go to a big church because there's more co potential customers. That's what that means. Paul says, listen, if that's the man's heart, that's the man's heart, then he has no business being a deacon or even a servant in the church. You see, sometimes in churches, we have such a hard time finding volunteers. We'll take anybody, right? So you, you go to a new church, you sit down, and they say, before they know it, can you, can you help with children's ministry? Can you do this? Can you do that? Not here. If you're visiting, you can rest assured it'll be about six months before you, I would even let you do much of anything, unless I know you personally from somewhere else or we've, we've been you know, some other way. I, I, don't, I would rather something sit empty and undone than to put the wrong person in it or to promote somebody too quickly in ministry. There's nothing worse than walking into a new church and you're just trying to figure out if you like it and, and all of a sudden they've got you volunteering for all kinds of things. You need to take some time, not greedy for money. And look what it says next, and I like this part. The person that's going to hold the office of deacon or be the deacon, it says you have to, holding the ministry of the faith with a pure conscience. Well, Rob, that's, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, I'm gonna explain it to you. Remember, whenever you see the word mystery in the Bible, it's not what you think of as mystery, okay? When we think of mystery, what do we think? Who done it? We don't, it's, it's a mystery. Something is unknown, right? When you think of the word mystery, oh, it's completely unknown. That's not what the Bible, that's not what the Greek word there for mystery means. What that word means is truth once hidden has now been revealed by God. So when, it, when Paul talks about a mystery, he's saying there was a truth that you didn't know, and now that you know it, that's a mystery. So it's, it's taking something that you had no idea what it was, you didn't understand it, and now you have understanding, that's the mystery. That now that you have understanding of something that you didn't have. And he says this about holding it. Holding it means to have it. It means to cling on to it. He says, so now you're holding this truth. You're clinging to this truth that you didn't know what it was. That now that you do, you're clinging to it. You're holding this mystery of faith, which is the word of God. And you're holding it with a pure conscience. You're holding it with a pure conscience. And here's what that means, with a pure conscience. That means a pure conscience is a conscience that is free and clean of adulterating matter. Free and clean of, of guilt. Free and clean of that. Let me put it to you this way. A, per, a pure conscience is possessed by people who have the conviction that they have done nothing wrong. They have the conviction. That there, there's, no, there's, there's no major conviction in their life. They're not, they're, not, they're not convicted of doing something wrong. They have the conviction of, I haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing that I've done wrong. They're, I, I'm not saying they're perfect again. Not saying that they're sinless or any stretch of the imagination. 
But they have this conscience that says, I- I'm okay. I'm, I'm, the Lord and I are okay. I'm, I've repented of my sins. I'm not, I'm not living in habitual sin. I, I have a pure and I have a clean conscience. And it's also somebody whose actions are not motivated with selfish desires. A pure conscience is a conscience of conviction where they have done nothing wrong and their actions are not motivated with selfish desires. I'm gonna challenge you to something. Find out how much of your actions, how much of what you do is motivated by selfishness. If you will take a look at that for yourself, if you will actually go to the Lord, Lord, would you show me where my actions are being selfish? God, would you show me where where, where my motivation is wrong? You're gonna be amazed. You're gonna be amazed because most of what we do, because we're human, is selfish. We do it because we wanna do it. We do it because we like it. We do it because we want the effects of something. We want the experience of something. We do it because it's our choice and we say we're gonna do that. But what he's saying here is when you hold the mystery, those things that were unknown, you need to hold them about the faith. You're gonna hold them with a pure conscience. You know what that means? Let me put it to you real simple. The Bible doesn't go in one ear and out the other. The Bible is something you live by, you set your life by, it's your plumb line, it's your standard. It's something, it just, it just means I am doing what the Bible says to do. A pure conscience means I don't have to feel guilty about it because the Bible, the Bible corrects me in some area, I make the change and I move on. That, that's, that's, that's all it means. And also it says, but let these also first, let them also first be tested. Tested. You see, this is why people that they first come into a church shouldn't be moved into a ministry right away. They should have to sit a while, be tested. Let them be tested. Well, what does that mean? It, it means that we watch their lives. We watch what's going on. How are they dealing with things? How are they conducting themselves? How do they handle adversity? How, what, what, what kind of person are they? What's going on? We're, 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 watch somebody for a while. Do you know that you can really get to know somebody by watching them for a while? Just watch them. <laughs> Before I became a pastor, I was a police officer. I had a job at one point where I did a lot of surveillance. And uh, I, would, I would sit and watch people, uh, usually criminals, uh, and, and I would watch them for days on end. We'd watch their patterns, we'd watch they do, we'd find out their spending habits, we'd watch everything about them, all just trying to gather information. It's amazing how well you could get to know somebody. Watch, where where do they go every day? They're going to here to eat all the time. And you can find out all this information just by simply watching. Now, it doesn't need to be done secretly or covertly or or some, you know, oh, is he watching me? No, I'm not watching you. I don't have to watch. I don't have time to watch you, but I can just watch how you navigate your life. I can just watch and see what you do. What's going on? How are you dealing with things? If you're single, how are you leading a single life? If you're married, how are things with your wife? If you're a parent, how are you dealing with your kids? If you're an employee, how are you doing with your job? You know, or how, how, what's going on? Is, is, is work always a problem? Is there always something wrong? I've said it before. If, the, if your life is full of drama and there's always a problem, you just might be the problem. <laughs> Everybody else is not always the problem. It might just be you. Look at yourself on that. I jotted this down. An untested Christian is an unprepared Christian. A Christian that hasn't been tested isn't prepared to serve yet. Deacons, bishops, pastors, elders, they should all be recognized, not appointed. Leaders in the church should all be seen long before their leaders. You guys should know, if it ever came time for me to make an associate pastor at our fellowship someday, it should be a no-brainer. 
It should be the person who is already filling the role of the pastor, already doing the things, already interacting with the people. Already, it should be a no-brainer. You should be like, oh, we saw that coming months ago or years ago or whatever because they should already be filling that role. Giving somebody a title of pastor, deacon, elder, bishop, whatever it is, doesn't make them that. We've all watched people get promoted in our jobs, and just because they get the title, it doesn't make them any good at what they do, does it? It's the same thing in a church. Now, look at the next verse. Likewise, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Likewise. The fact that it says, well, let me say this first. If you're reading from the New King James, do you see the word that they, do you see the word there and do you see the word must be? Do you see there in italics? Do you know what that means? That means it's not part of the original language. That means the translators took the liberty to stick it in there to help us understand things a little better. Okay? And I always, whenever I'm reading my Bible and I come across something in italics, I always say, well, I wonder what it would read like if we took that out. So I want to show you something. They're not part of the original language, but the fact that it says likewise, he started verse 8 with likewise, and now he comes to verse 11 and he says likewise, but he's addressing a group of people here. He says likewise wives. He says likewise wives. Now we have to ask our question, is he talking about a bishop, or I'm sorry, a deacon's wife here? Because I want to tell you something, that word for, for wives in the Greek, it's gune, it's gune, and it means this, it means woman, or it means wife. It's translated in the Bible just about a little over 200 times. About 50% of the time it's translated as woman. About the other half of the time it's translated as wife. So there's two possibilities of understanding here. Some people in some churches would read this and they would say, well, this, is, this scripture is referring to the wife of a deacon. Other churches, and I have absolutely no problem with, with, this, with this translation, say this is referring to female deacons or somebody who would be a deaconess. This is referring to, it, it could, it literally in the translation, and, and Bible scholars would agree, you know, it could be either one of these things. So likewise, Paul's starting a new list. He's talking to either women or wives here. I tend to personally believe he's talking to women. I think he's talking to women who will be deacons, who will be servants in the church. And he gives them some characteristics. He says this. Their wives, their women, must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, and faithful in all things. Now, I know what you're thinking. Rob, you just said a woman can be a deacon or a deaconess is okay. Well, do you know that Paul said the same thing? He did? Yeah, he made it very clear for us. In Romans chapter 16, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, he said this. He said, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister who is a, who is a servant. But do you know it's the same Greek word that's translated deacon? It's the same word. It's translated servant in, Acts, in, in Romans chapter 16. It's translated, it's translated deacon in other places in scripture. So what he's saying is, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who's a deacon of the church of Centuria. So Paul is recognizing Phoebe as a woman who is coming alongside and serving 
in the church. It doesn't mean she's holding an office in the church. It just means simply that she's serving. And I think that we would all agree that women do a lot to serve in a church. So he's recognizing this. But he tells the wives or the women, and you can, you can pick either one. You can believe it's a deacon's wife. Or you can believe it's a woman. I, I personally, like I said, I believe he's talking about women, deaconesses in the church. Likewise, their women be reverent, slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So he lists four things. He says, ladies, if you want to be a servant in the church, you can't just decide you want to be a servant someday. There's certain requirements that you, want, that you need to meet. First thing, you need to be reverent. Well, that's just like for the men, right? He said that earlier in the, in, in the men, back up in verse 8. It means showing proper respect toward both God and man. It means you have to be worthy of respect. It means you have to be a woman who other women want to imitate your godly character. It means that there has to be a, a godliness about you. But he also says, he also says, not slanders, not slanders. Now, my, my Bible has a note in it. It says also that that's referred to as malicious gossips. You're not supposed to be malicious gossips. We all know what gossip is, right? When you talk about somebody behind their back and maybe you say things that weren't true. And, you, know, you can always tell if it's gossip. Would you say exactly what you're saying if they were standing right in front of you? you know? And uh, you know, so that, that's really what gossip is. But do you know that that word in the Greek is diablos? Anybody know what diablos means? It means devil. It means devil. Do not, do not be slanderers, malicious gossip, or, or don't, don't, don't be like the devil. You know, saying things that aren't true, essentially. What is the devil known as? The father of lies. That's what Satan is known as. Don't be malicious gossips. Don't be slanderers. But he also says, the third thing he says, you need to be temperate. You need to be temperate. That means sober. Sometimes that word is translated in the classical Greek uh, as being wineless. You're not under the influence of wine. You're, you're temperate. You're sober. You're not under the influence of an addiction. That's what temperate means. You're not addicted to anything. It also, also describes a person who's not given to extremes. You know, you're not way over here one day and way over here the next. And you're not way out there in one extreme or the other. You're just, you're, you're a woman who's temperate. You're a woman who's sober-minded. We saw that same thing above when we looked at bishops that were called to be temperate. And lastly, it says that you need to be faithful, faithful in all things. That just simply means trustworthy. It means reliable. It means dependable. It means faithful. Ladies, if you want to serve in the church, it's not just a decision you make. It's a lifestyle you have to live. There are certain requirements that go along with it, no different than there is for the men. The apostle Paul is encouraging men to raise up holy hands and to pray everywhere and to lead the church, and there are certain requirements. You don't just get to be a leader in a church because you're a man. He says, I want you to be reverent, ladies. I want you not to be slanderers. I want you to be temperate. I want you to be faithful in all things. And now Paul turns back to the men. He says, let, let the deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their house well. Husband of one wife. Again, there's two possibilities here. Some of our brothers and sisters say, well, that means you can never be divorced. If you want to serve in the church, if you've had more than one wife, sorry, it doesn't, you don't fit that role. Some people say, well, no, Paul's referring to polygamy there. Paul's referring to polygamy, that, that men should only have a single wife and you shouldn't have multiple wives. Um, listen, I don't believe that divorce always disqualifies somebody from serving as a deacon or even as a bishop or a pastor. I think it can, and oftentimes it does. But I think it's an individual case where you have to look at the circumstances, you have to look at the spiritual condition of the person when it happened, the spiritual position of the person where they're at now. Because I think it would be fair to say that we all make mistakes. We've all done things that were wrong. I personally don't believe that just simply because 
somebody has been divorced, that that forbids them from ever being in service in a church again. I don't think that's right. But let me say to you that I think it can. I think depending on the circumstances on how it happened, you know, if it's a situation where he is very much at fault and, and he was a believer at the time, that it very will, well could, it could eliminate him from being qualified to serve in that position or in that role in a church. I talked more about that last week. You can go back and get uh, the, the message on that if you would, if you wanted to. But notice it also says ruling their own house well. Again, I, I think that's real simple. You wanna see how somebody's going to do? Check out their house. Check out what are they doing at home? How's their family operating? How's their kids? How's their, how's their wife? How, how's the family function? Is, is it operating in a, the, the way, in, a, in a godly manner? Again, please understand, nothing's perfect. You know, no, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. These are standards that, that are put in place. Nobody is saying, well, if you, you, know, you, you blow at one time with your kids, that's it, you're disqualified. Nobody's saying that at all. But we're looking as a whole, we're looking as a general. You know, how are they operating? How is it, how is it, how is it working? You know, when you begin to serve in a church, people are gonna begin to look up to you as a leader. The more you do, people begin to look up to you whether you like it or not. We don't have a worship team. Someday we'll get one, I hope. I'm praying for one. And someday we'll have one. But do you know that the worship leader is looked up as a, even, though, even if you don't call him a worship, him or her a worship leader, that you will automatically look up to that person as a leader? They have to meet these requirements. They can't just, it just, it's just not because they're a gifted musician that they can, that they're all of a sudden, now you're qualified to lead worship. That's not it at all. Just because somebody can play a guitar and sing or play an instrument and sing, that doesn't mean you're qualified to lead worship. Just because somebody wants to teach Sunday school doesn't mean they're qualified to teach Sunday school. Because somebody wants to have a home Bible study doesn't mean they're qualified. You know, there's certain requirements that God puts in that place. I like the fact that he's organized. I like the fact that he lists requirements and he tells us what's expected of us. But I wanna show you this too. There's a promise in this. He says, for those who have served well. For those who have served well as deacons, they obtain for themselves two things. They obtain a good standing and a great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. If you serve well in the church, you're gonna obtain a good standing for yourself, a good rank for yourself, a good position for yourself. But I want you to notice what else you obtain. You obtain a great boldness in the faith. Have you ever met anybody that said, I wish I was more bold for Christ. I wish I, I, wish I could be more bold. I wish I could be more outspoken. I wish I, ask them next time, where are you serving in the church? Because there's a promise in God's word here that says if you wanna get boldness for Christ, Start serving well. Not just serving, but serving well. For those who have served well, those who are serving well as deacons obtain themselves for themselves good standing, a good position, and a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. A great boldness. You say, Rob, I wish I could be more bold. Start serving well. Paul, God promises it. If you're serving well, the boldness will come naturally. Why? It's simple. Your actions are backing up what you believe. The things that you say are important with your mouth are now important with your life and you're doing what you said you would do. You know, we live in a world, my wife and I have been playing with this term and I hope she's not planning on talking about this at a ladies' study. If, if so, just act like you never heard it before, ladies. We're playing with this term called Christian-ish. Christian-ish. You know what Christian-ish is? It means 
It means I go to church. I, I, I believe the Bible, some of it. I, I, I'll live my life Christianish. I'll live my life in a Christian way. I'll live my life where, where I'll take certain things and I'll hold on to them. I'll take other things and, well, I'm just, not, I'm just going to kind of ignore those things. And, and I'll do things for God when they benefit me. And I'll serve in the church when, well, it's convenient for me. And I'll help other people as long as, well, I don't have anything going on. And I'll, I'll, it, it becomes this, and, and I think America specifically, we've become very Christian-ish. We've come, become Christian-ish. We're just, you know, we go to church a couple times a a month or a year, but are we really committed to what God says? You see, I'm not going to change my life that much. I just want to be saved. I just, you know, I heard the pastor say, if I don't know Jesus, I'm going to burn in hell. So I went up and I said the prayer and and now I've got my fire insurance. I'm not going to burn. I'm good. I'm just going to skate through this life and it won't be any problems. That's Christian-ish. I think as a Christian, that should turn your stomach. That's, that's the kind of person that gives Christians, they were all out, Christian-ish, well, I'm going to go do the, the, what was it last night, the holy pub crawl. I'm going to go do that, and I'll just ask for forgiveness. No, that's not what Christians do. We don't do that. As a Christian, I don't want to be Christian-ish. I want to be somebody who's committed, who's sold out, who, who the Lord in my, in my life is not one of the things that I do. It's the most important thing that I do. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the passion that I have. It's, I wake up in the morning, I want to read my word. I, I make sure my prayer, I, 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 not because I have to, because I get to. I would challenge us. Do we do things sometimes because we're Christian-ish? Because that's not what the Lord wants. I think he would refer to that as being lukewarm. And we all know what happened to the lukewarm church. You see, I think that as Christians, we need to make sure that we hold the Bible in high regard, that we will defend its values, we will defend its truth, we will tell our friends when they begin talking about cultural events that the Bible calls wrong, I believe that we should stand up and say, no, that's wrong. You're entitled to opinion just like they are. And there's nothing wrong with telling somebody that, hey, this is wrong, what you're saying is wrong. But the only way that we can do that is if we know the Bible. Because Christianish doesn't really know the Bible. Christianish wants to go to a church where they just get entertained and they really don't teach the Bible. You know, well, Rob, I don't really want to be a deacon and I'm kind of bored that you went through this. Well, you need to know it if you want to get past being Christianish. That's why we teach the Bible the way we do, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We'll finish up the rest of chapter three next week. I wanted to try to get it this week, but there's just too much in there. It's important that we understand it and that we know it. Listen, your life will be changed by the word of God but you've got to let the word of God change your life. God promised that his word will not return void. He never made that promise to any pastor or preacher or teacher. If I don't teach you God's word, I've got nothing to give you. What do you want, my life experience? Why do you want that? My life experience comes from God's word. You don't want to hear a five-point message on how to deal with stress during the holidays. You want to hear what God's word says on how how to deal with stress and anxiety and things like that. You don't want to hear somebody's four R-letter words that they pull from all different places in scripture to, to tell you how to deal with this thing that you're going through. What does God's word tell me? My opinion means nothing. I'll interject it here and there because, hey, I like to. But it's God's word that we must stand on. If we don't want to be Christian-ish, 
if we don't wanna just go to the salad bar of Christianity and take and pick and choose the things that we want, we've got to take the way that we live out of God's word. If we fail to do that, we're Christianish. Just, we're just, 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 just like everybody else. God changed the world when he sent Jesus his son. He changed everything. Got rid of the law, brought about grace and mercy, brought salvation through belief in Jesus Christ. We now hold that. If in fact we're living in the last days, and I believe that we are, if in fact we are, he chose us to carry the gospel in the last days. Think about that. You've been given the gospel, you've been given understanding, you're holding it in your hands, the mystery, you're holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience, and now it's your job to give it out. Well, Rob, I need to be bold. Start serving well first. Boldness comes naturally. Don't ever let a pastor tell you you need to just go knock on 10 doors and you have to do this or you have to do that, and that's boldness. No, boldness will come naturally when you begin living what you say you believe. It happens naturally. Some people will be more outspoken than others. That's our personality. Your personality doesn't change when you accept Christ. If you're quiet and shy before, you're gonna be quiet and shy afterwards, but you can still live a life bold for Jesus. Listen, the apostle Paul's laying this all out for Timothy for a very specific purpose. Because when we get to chapter four, he's gonna say, listen, Timothy, there's gonna be people that come into the church and they're gonna try to ruin the work of the Lord. There's gonna be people that sneak in under false pretense and they're going to try to split and destroy and cut away what God is trying to do. And it hasn't changed today. What's going to hold the church together, Timothy, is order and the word of God. The order that Paul's laying down and the word of God is what's going to keep us together. Let nothing come between the church. Let us not fight, let us not bicker, let us not dispute, especially with people within our own fellowship. And let us be people who lay our life down for the Lord. It's real simple. Don't be Christianish. If you are Christianish, it's time to change and to be in for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's why it's, here's why it's time to change. And we're going to close with this thought. He's got work for you to do. If he brought you to faith for a reason, there's work for you to do. And you'll never accomplish what your work is if you're just simply living a Christian-ish life. He's got a plan. There's more to life than just going to work every day, paying the bills, hitting the daily grind, my cup of coffee, my three cups of coffee in the morning, my daily grind, my job, that's it. No, there's more to life than that. He wants to fulfill your life more than that, but you have to be willing to yield and to obey the word of God.